Just a reminder that there will not be Bible class on Thursday night this week. <clears throat> Sometimes I think some people got the message that there wouldn't be Bible class tonight. I don't know. The way these schools are now, some schools, Spring Branch and Houston, are giving the whole week off, and some of the others are. It's like everybody goes on vacation, <clears throat> except your spiritual life doesn't go on vacation. Hopefully they're live streaming. Also, we're going to have our Thanksgiving Christmas meal on December 10th. There will be a sign-up sheet out in the, in the uh, fellowship hall. And then also information about the D.C. trip to the Museum of the Bible, which that trip is going to get increasingly more interesting as uh, some of the details come out. We have Louis Gomert giving us a capital tour. And a note about that is Dan E. I've gone through David Barton's capital tour a couple of times. Dan Ingram's gone through about seven or eight times because he's just right in the neighborhood. And... Uh, one time when he was going through, David Barton saw Louis Gohmert leading a tour group through, and he said, that's the only guy who gives a tour as good as mine. So that's high praise from someone like David Barton. So that's going to be a very, very good uh, tour of the Capitol from a Christian perspective. So it's, they're going to be talking about things that the secularists who lead the tours are probably a ignorant of and b wish to remain ignorant of. Uh, how many? How many of y'all? I'm not even going to have you show hands because I know none of you knew this. That from around eight early early 1800s until after the Civil War, that a church met in the Capitol building on a regular basis. And when the author of the so-called separation of church and state phrase was president, that's Thomas Jefferson, he went to church there. You don't learn that in your history book. So a church met in a federal building, and Thomas Jefferson did not see a conflict of interest there. Hmm. Maybe other agendas are at work. So that's what's going on there. The other announcement that most of you probably heard, but others who are live streaming did not, is that Bert Seville uh, went to be with the Lord last night. He was surrounded by his family. He was conscious for much of the early part of the evening, and the family was gathered around him, and they were praying, and they were singing hymns, some of his favorite hymns, and he was conscious, conscious and he would uh, go to sleep, and then he would wake up, and he knew exactly what they were singing. And then one time he went to sleep, and he just woke up in the arms of Jesus. And so they are going to have a private viewing at Memorial Oaks Friday afternoon, and then there will be a uh, <clears throat> there'll be a memorial service uh, celebration uh, here. Uh, next week, probably on Saturday morning, December the second, but that hasn't been finalized yet. So just be uh, just be aware of that. Uh, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the 
flower fade, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we have this time to come together, to be refreshed by your word, to enjoy our fellowship with you around the word that you have revealed to us, and that God the Holy Spirit would challenge us with what we study, with what we learn, that we might expand our understanding of uh, the intimacy that we can have with you in fellowship, way in which it impacts our prayer life and how we communicate to you and your intimate involvement with every aspect of our life. Father, we pray for Bert's family. We're thankful for his tremendous testimony. We pray for his family, for his children, his grandchildren. We pray that they might understand what has taken place and the spiritual significance of it, especially his grandchildren, and that they might be comforted by your word. Now, Father, we pray for Linda as well, that she would be comforted during this time and that during the next few weeks that she would very much experience your hand of comfort upon her. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 18. Now, Psalm chapter 18 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a little long to read, perhaps, at Thanksgiving lunch on Thursday. But since this week we are celebrating Thanksgiving, I think it's important for families to take some time. Uh, some of this may be a little late, but if kids are out of school already, you can give them a little assignment. Uh, this is a good opportunity for uh, <clears throat> you to reflect upon this holiday. I think it's very important for Americans to think about uh, Thanksgiving, what's involved in Thanksgiving and expressions uh, of gratitude. A couple of suggestions I have for making Thanksgiving a little more focused on the spiritual realities is, first of all, look through the Psalms and pick out some Psalms of Thanksgiving and maybe two or three verses related to Thanksgiving and giving thanks to the Lord, and then uh, reading those uh, maybe before you pray at your Thanksgiving meal, just a verse or two. Second suggestion is think a way, of a way to think through, and if you have kids or grandkids, to tell the story of the Puritans. Now, this is probably more significant for those who are, who are not being homeschooled or who are uh, not in some private school. It varies. Some schools do a very good job of still teaching accurate truth about the uh, Puritans. Others do not, or the pilgrims. If you have kids and, the, and they're of a certain age, I think between about, depending on their reading level, but somewhere between maybe 7 and 14, they could read Rush Limbaugh's book, uh, Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims. Uh, he's got a series of books that he's written. I read this one last year and thought it was great. He has all kinds of uh, interesting information, good historical research behind it, uh, good information on the pilgrims. The pilgrims were not Puritans. The pilgrims were basically separatist Baptists who, because of the... Uh, 
overtones of Catholicism that still remained in the Anglican Church, they wanted to leave England. They were being persecuted because they weren't part of the Anglican Church. They were separatists, and they were Baptists, which meant that they believed in in believer's baptism and baptism by immersion. Uh, Puritans believed a lot of the same things, but they stayed within the Anglican Church, and they wanted to purify it. That's what Puritan comes from, the idea that purify it from the idolatry, as they saw it, of Roman Catholicism. So they wanted to get rid of the altar and get rid of the art, get rid of the uh, crucifixes and all of those things. They wanted to uh, purify the Anglican Church from the uh, residual uh, <clears throat> or the residual things from Roman Roman Catholicism. The Puritans were a group from a couple of different congregations in Gainsborough and Scrooby in England, and they left England and they went to Holland, where which had a greater impact of the Reformation, but they just didn't quite feel comfortable there. They were there for about, uh, I think, five to ten years, maybe a little longer, and uh, their pastor was a man named John Robinson. And that's something that you might also do is have your kids or grandkids do some research on John Robinson, what he believed. Uh, he was their pastor. He did not make it on the Mayflower. He did not come uh, across the seas. Only part of the congregation did. But you might want to do some research on John Robinson and these uh, separatist Baptist groups in England during that time. And then another thing that you might spend some time thinking about, and I've thought about this a lot in the last week, and that is the relationship between an understanding of gratitude and grace and how that impacts good manners. There have been especially one local story about some people who have a truck down in Sugarland area who have a rather obscene sign on the back of it. And it's, you know, they have the freedom of speech to do something like that. But it's bad manners. It's uncivil. We, the more we've given our culture over to narcissism and to a lack of self-restraint and not teaching self-discipline, not teaching uh, consideration for others, the more we see the civil discourse in this country deteriorate. And that's not just, this is just a, uh, the, a current manifestation of it. This has been going on for at least the last uh, 25 or 30 years since uh, the mid-80s. It gets worse with every presidential election, I, I, I believe. But it, it comes right down to the fact that we have now have a culture where people aren't grateful. Because to be grateful, you can't be... Gratitude is not consistent with narcissism. In narcissism and self-absorption, it's all about me and self-gratification. But in gratitude, notice self-gratification. The root words are the same in Latin. Grace, gratis, gratitude, all of these, gratification, all come from the same basic root. And when you are uh, focused on self, you can't focus on others. 
And the more a culture becomes focused on self, the more fragmented it becomes. And that is exactly the kind of thing that we see in this country. They're not able to uh, disagree agreeably. They have to, they get more and more polarized and fragmented. And then all you have is a lot of emotion and a lot of angry, obscene things that are said. And there is, you know, you reach a point where there, there's not going to be a recovery. So just because, I mean, the only recovery theoretically is the grace of God and the people will turn back to him. But apart from that, when you've taken God out of the schools, when you've taken God out of public life, when you've taken God out of government, you've taken God out of everything, then the only thing that becomes a God is self. And that's exactly what's happened uh, in our culture. So Thanksgiving is an opportunity to think about uh, some of those uh, things because it's it just how can we be grateful when all Thanksgiving is all about eating as much as you can, eating some of your favorite comfort foods, and then watching football if there are football games on. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but that has supplanted the idea that we should be grateful that we're alive another day. We should be grateful that we have the families that we have and the good things that we have in families. Every family has a problem because every family is made up of people who are corrupt sinners. And because every family is made up of corrupt sinners, every family is dysfunctional. Uh, that whole term that came out in the psychobabble of the 80s is just another way, if you're biblical, of talking about every family is impacted by sin. And some families have people who are less restrained in terms of their sin nature than other families. And so that means some people realize what modern people want to call victimization more than others. But as I said Sunday morning, we've all been victimized by Adam. Adam's sin introduced corruption into everything that human beings are involved in. And so we can't bail out and say, well, oh, I'm a victim. Well, so what? Everybody else is too. We have a solution, and that's the grace of God. No matter what your problem may be, God solves it. And that is a major theme in Psalm 18. David certainly would have had the right if he had chosen, if he had been a 21st century American, to have whined and mewed about how much he was a victim of Saul and Saul's ingratitude and Saul's lies and Saul's deception, Saul's attempts to, to uh, kill uh, David. But David didn't come out of a narcissistic culture like we have today. He came out of a culture that, to some degree or another, was still primarily impacted by the thought forms that came from the Torah, from the, from the Word of God. And so as we have seen in the first part of this psalm, David describes the disastrous situation that he found himself in uh, year after year as Saul is, was trying to... Um, destroy him. And we've gotten now down to a section in verses uh, 20 to 25, I mean 20 to 30. We looked at 20 to 24 last time. 
it focuses on the way God delivered David. And so the focus in this next section from 25 to 30 is on the character of God. Several things are highlighted with regard to his character. I have highlighted what I think is the underlying or primary primary emphasis uh, in the title, God's, that little typo there, God's faithfulness and mercy. In verses 25 to 30, this is a psalm of gratitude where David expresses his gratitude, his joy and praise. His, he's content with God. And joy does not mean you're having a celebration per se. You're having, it's always a birthday party and you're ecstatic. It is a term in scripture for a stable, content tranquil mental attitude as I talked about Sunday morning a relaxed mental attitude that is not going to be shaken by the circumstances around us now unfortunately we all get shaken by the circumstances around us we worry we become anxious we get angry we lose our tempers we get very frustrated a lot of other things come out of our sin nature that are just automatic responses to certain stimuli but the more we mature as believers, hopefully the lag time between I got upset and I shouldn't have gotten upset goes from 30 minutes to 15 minutes to 5 minutes and hopefully 30 seconds or 15 seconds. And we start getting mad and then we say, no, that's not the right response. And only 2 or 3 seconds goes by. And that is how we grow and mature as believers. It's sort of like when you get an opportunity, somebody comes over to the house, works on maybe a plumber, electrician, somebody works on your car, whatever, and they leave. And six hours later, you think, I could have witnessed to that person. And one day, it may be three hours goes by before it occurs to you. And then one day, Right after they leave, it occurs to you. And then one day, while they're there, you say, oh, this is a great opportunity to find out if they're saved. And that's how Christians grow, is you become more and more focused on applying the word in your life. So this is what happens with David. He's gone through ups and downs. He's gone through times when he's been obedient, times when he's been disobedient, times when he's uh, reacted to Saul, times when he has not. And now that God has delivered him, he expresses his gratitude and praise to God for delivering him from those circumstances. And so in these verses that we studied the last, last time and this time in verses 20 to 30, God is praised because he faithfully blesses those who are loyal to him. This is, these are not the blessings that are related to salvation, but post-salvation blessings. Blessings that God had already promised David. See, our blessings are already ours. We were blessed at salvation with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The way God's blessing works isn't that you go read your Bible, you pray, and God says, oh, they got two brownie points, now I'm going to bless them. He's already blessed us. He's given us all of those blessings. As we mature, he will begin to distribute those blessings when we're ready. That's exemplified in David's life. God had already promised David that he would make him the king of Israel. 
that happened back when he was anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But God had to prepare David for that role. And that's what's been going on since 1 Samuel 17 to the end of 1 Samuel is God's preparing David. He's maturing him. He's teaching him. He's training him spiritually to prepare him to be the ruler of Israel. He wasn't ready as a young man, but now God has brought him to that point where he has grace orientation and humility, and he understands that God is really the only solution to whatever the problem is. There are secondary, tertiary solutions, but they have to fit within the framework of God's plan. And so I pointed out last time that he'd come to understand that his relationship with God was so important, and therefore he walked with God, what we call fellowship. But fellowship isn't a static thing that, oh, I'm in fellowship or I'm out of fellowship, but it is enjoying a relationship. And we should ask ourselves this question on a daily basis. Am I enjoying my relationship with God today? Am I enjoying my relationship with God today as I'm watching horrible things on the news? Am I enjoying my relationship today as I hear about problems at work, at the office? Am I enjoying my relationship today with God today as I'm going to the grocery store and I may be out in bad traffic? Whatever it is, we are to enjoy that relationship on a day-to-day basis. And part of that is reading what God has for us, is reading our Bible. So two things that we ought to constantly be bringing to our mind, am I enjoying my relationship with God today? And am I reading God's word that he has written to me? And all of God's word is written to us. Some of it is written indirectly to us because the primary recipient was uh, somebody in the Old Testament or maybe somebody in the first century. But it is by implication written to teach us and train us in our relationship with God. So in Psalm 18, 20 to 21, David said, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. And then in verse 21, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. And if we look down to verse 24, David reiterates this, as I pointed out last time, saying, therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, this isn't a works-based system, as I pointed out last time. He is clean because he has confessed sin. And because he has confessed sin, he has been cleansed and forgiven of that sin. And he realizes the issue isn't just getting cleansed, but it's walking in righteousness. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So as long as he's walking according to the Lord, he is, he's got experiential righteousness and he is clean. That's the idea is to stay in fellowship. To, Jesus called it abiding in him. It's not just abiding and leaving, abiding and leaving, abiding and leaving, but it is staying in that intimate relationship with God. So I reviewed us briefly on five things related to rewards. First of all, salvation's free. Rewards are earned. This is part of spiritual growth, our spiritual life. 
Colossians 3, 23 and 24, that talks about the fact that we will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's earned through spiritual growth. Uh, salvation's a free gift, Romans 5, 15 and 17, as well as Ephesians 2, 8. Second point was that salvation is based on faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Nothing else, nothing less. And rewards are based on our spiritual growth, walking by the Holy Spirit. Third point was that rewards and blessing occur in this life and in the next. So there are some blessings and rewards that are distributed in this life. That's what David's talking about. It's a blessing that God elevated him to the position of king of Israel. That's a blessing for time, but there are also blessings for eternity. David will come back and be a ruler over Israel in his resurrection body in the millennial kingdom. Fourth, rewards are related to inheritance, and there are two kinds of inheritance, that which is for all believers and that which is for obedient, spiritually spiritually growing believers who are also known as disciples. I use this little illustration. I'll use it again. This phrase, a woman without her man is nothing. Depending on how you punctuate it, it has two different meanings. A woman without her Man is nothing, where the emphasis is on man being nothing. The, the, second, the, or the third example is punctuated differently. A woman without her man is nothing. So the second sentence is punctuated so that the man is nothing. The third, section, the third sentence has the commas shifted, and the main thought is a woman is nothing without her man. So commas are introduced in order to express different thoughts. Now what we have in Romans 8.17 is a passage that is poorly punctuated in most translations. Romans 8.17 says, If we're children, that's every believer is a child of God. We are heirs also. There are two kinds of heirs here. Heirs of God, comma, most translations, there's not a comma there. It's heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as if those are synonymous. But if you put the comma after heirs of God, then every believer is an heir of God, and only some are joint heirs, and the condition on being a fellow heir or joint heir with Christ is suffering with him. That's our theme in First Peter that we're studying on Thursday night. So, that shows that there are two different kinds of inheritance. One, one level, heirs of God, that's for every believer, and one level that's just for those who are growing and maturing. Fifth point was that rewards for eternity are distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. Old Testament believers will get their distribution at their resurrection, which comes at the end of the tribulation uh, period. Okay, that brings us up to where we've been several times. There's similarities between Psalm 18 and Psalm 17, so turn the page back a page. We see that the Scripture reiterates these important themes over and over and over again. The themes are that when uh, the believer, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, when the believer is walking with God in fellowship, enjoying that relationship, being cleansed of sin, then 
God listens to prayer and responds to prayer. And that's the point that I want to make as we look at the, just the, briefly at the first five verses in Psalm, uh, Psalm 17. These verses tell us something about prayer and the fact that it is important to be in that right relationship correctly adjusted to God's righteousness. And so Psalm 17 isn't tied to any specific situation. It simply begins, now New King James Version says, hear a just cause. Cause is not in the original. It just says, O Lord, hear righteousness or hear justice. It's the word tzedek, and that's what it means. It could be uh, translated, hear my righteous prayer. It could be, it, it literally just says, hear my righteous. And so there's a implication of something. And since it's talking about prayer in the uh, second line, give ear to my prayer, then that would be the most logical thing to insert there. Hear my righteous prayer or my righteous plea. What is it that makes it righteous? It's consistent with the character of God. To pray a righteous prayer means that we have to understand what righteousness is. We have to understand the righteousness and justice of God. Second, we have to understand God's plan and purpose for history and God's plan and purpose for our lives. And third, we have to understand we have to understand what it means to be in right relationship with God because as I quoted a minute ago in Psalm 66:18, if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord won't hear us. Okay, so then it's an unrighteous prayer. A believer can pray an unrighteous prayer because he is out of fellowship. He hasn't been cleansed. He has been separated by God from God uh, temporarily in his spiritual walk because he's walking by, by the sin nature. So David talks about this, and he asserts that his prayer is righteous. It conforms to God's word. It conforms to God's standard. And so he is calling upon the Lord to pay attention, to attend to an issue that is righteous. And I want you to notice that the verbs that are used here in verse 1, hear, attend, and give ear to. Now, in, in the Hebrew, this is, this is considered an imperative of request. He is calling upon God imploring him to listen, but he can do that because he understands uh, what righteousness is all about and that he's adjusted to the righteousness of God. He conforms to it through cleansing of sin and his day-to-day behavior after that. It's not about just confessing, it's about staying in fellowship. So you see that evidenced in these verses. Hear justice, O Lord. Attend or pay attention to my cry. There you hear the word cry. We've seen that many times in these Psalms. And then give ear, or today we might translate listen uh, to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Now, we know that what comes out of the lips reflects what's in the soul. 
And so this is a figure of speech where, which is talking about if there's no deceitful lips, then the heart has been cleansed. So he's talking about that uh, being in a state of forgiveness. So it's uh, experiential righteousness and, and temporal righteousness. And then he says in verse 2, uh, let my vindication come from your presence or you vindicate me. You, in other words, he's saying, you know that I am in a, I am cleansed and I am walking in righteousness. So he says, let my vindication come from your presence and let your eyes look on that which is upright. Now, he's not claiming to be perfect. This is such a problem for so many Christians because of certain translations and their failure to understand issues in the spiritual life is that we still sin. But when we sin, we confess and we're back, we're we're restored to fellowship. David isn't claiming moral perfection here. He isn't claiming that he is flawless and sinless, but that at this time he is walking closely with God in righteousness. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, you've tested my heart. In other words, God, you can look on my soul. The heart stands for primarily your soul, your inner man, and I mean the innermost part of your soul and especially your thinking. Look, you examined my heart. We might paraphrase it. You have examined my thinking. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, when it says, if I regard iniquity, in my heart, and regarding is a way of saying, looking at, focusing on, thinking about. And so God has examined him, and he has uh, tried him and found nothing. And then he says again, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. That echoes the line in verse 1, which is not from deceitful lips, because he has been cleansed internally. Verse 4, concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. That reminds me a lot of all of those verses in Proverbs 1, 2, 3, talking about our way, the way of the Lord, the way of righteousness versus the way of the fool or the way of wickedness. And then his prayers to uphold my steps in your paths, paths of righteousness, that my footsteps may not slip. So he prays that God would, in essence, what Jesus talks about in the um, disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, and that is, lead me not into temptation. Uh, Uphold my steps. Strengthen me. So that is part of his prayer and can be part of, should be part of our prayers as well. So ultimately what this is talking about and recognizes all through Psalm 17 and Psalm 18 is that if we are going to have victory over the issues in life that distract us, that only comes from the Lord. And that reminds me of an important verse in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, it doesn't say you shouldn't have a watchman, and it doesn't say you shouldn't labor, but that you must recognize that ultimately that has to be done 
in accordance with God's plan and purpose and under his authority. Let God build a church. God's going to build a church. You're going to do it according to God's standards. You're not going to do it according to human viewpoint techniques, which come out of the church growth movement and many of those things. And, And I have had most of my adult life, I have been aware of this thing called the church growth movement, and it is just a a human attempt to build the church. John chapter 21, Jesus told the disciples, feed my sheep. Jesus said in Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus said he builds the church, pastors feed the sheep. Unfortunately, most pastors today think that God told them to build the church and that the Sunday school teachers would feed the sheep. And that is going to produce just a lot of very weak believers who are ignorant of the word. Now, there are some good Sunday school teachers. I'm not running down all Sunday school teachers. There are some places where you have exceptional uh, Sunday school teachers. There's churches in this town I know of that have men who aren't pastors, but they've got uh, THMs from generations back uh, from Dallas Seminary and are very solid in their in their training. And uh, unfortunately, they're becoming fewer and fewer in number as the years go by. Okay, so we come to verse 25. In verse 25 of chapter 18, we read, With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. So now David completely shifts to the focus on God. Always notice in the Psalms how how the writer always brings us back to the essence box. Always brings us back to the character of God. He says, With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble person, but will bring down haughty looks. Now, the first time you read through that, you think, well, I'm not really sure what he's talking about here. What does he mean when he makes these three statements that with one category of person, he shows himself to be in that same category? With the merciful, you'll show yourself merciful, blameless man, you'll be blameless, pure, you'll be pure. But when you get to the fourth stanza, it shifts, doesn't it? With the devious the New King James says, you will show yourself shrewd. Now, the first three lines focus on somebody who's walking with the Lord. They're in right relationship with the Lord. But the last line is with the person who is in rebellion against God. So let's work our way through this because there's some translation issues here we probably should clarify. When we look at this, we should be reminded of the different ways in which the text is set up in terms of parallelism. There's synonymous parallelism, which is a way of saying the same thing twice with different words. The second line echoes the first line. 
Then we have antithetical parallelism, which is a contrast. The second line says the opposite of the first line. Third way is called a synthetic parallelism, and it's a catch-all. Okay, and that's probably what this is. The second line expands or develops or says something different than the first line, builds on it. And then we have a climactic parallelism um, or step parallelism, which the thought is developed, but the repetition builds to a climax with uh, additional material. So these are the different kinds, and this is probably synthetic uh, parallelism. So in the first line, the emphasis is on merciful. That's the word in the New King James, but that's not the best way to translate this word. This word, as you see down below, is the Hebrew word chasid. Anybody know what familiar word comes from chasid? The Hasidic Jews. That's, that's the root word in, in the Hebrew. And it means to be godly or merciful or loyal. And it comes from, if you look at the second line, it comes from the verb chasad, which is related to the noun chesed. Okay, you just change the vowels to change the parts of speech. That's how, how Hebrew works. But the, the consonants are the same. So chesed is the idea of God is faithful or loyal to his uh, covenant. So this word group emphasizes faithfulness, and when it's applied to, for example, the godly ones, they are faithful to God and they follow God. So when you have the first line with the merciful, that is the word chasid. So it's not really those who are merciful, but those who are faithful to God, God will show himself faithful. If you are walking with the Lord, God will show you. That's exactly what David has been talking about in verses 20 to 24 in terms of the way that God has uh, recompensed him because he has been faithful in walking with the Lord. So the emphasis there is that God rewards those who are faithful to him in their, in their spiritual walk. Because when you're faithful to him, you're going to grow spiritually. When you grow and mature spiritually, you develop the capacity to enjoy the blessings that God has already promised you. Now, this, this is similar back to Psalm 17, which we looked at earlier. In Psalm 17, 7, we only looked at the first five verses, Psalm 17, 7 says, Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Now, the right hand was the position of strength from a king. Okay, When Jesus goes to the throne of God, he sits at his right hand. That's the position of favor. That's the position of strength. That's the position of power. So when uh, this verse says, Show your marvelous loving kindness, that's chesed. Okay, sometimes it's translated faithfulness or faithful, loyal love. It's that idea of loyalty. God is loyal to his covenant. And then it expands on that in the next line. It says, oh, you who save those who trust in you. See, that is an expression of God's faithful, loyal love. 
those who trust in him are those who are faithful to him, as David has been. So when when he writes, show your marvelous faithfulness by your right hand, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about God's provision for the believer that is growing and maturing. And save those who trust in you is not talking about going to heaven when you die. In context, it's talking about God's deliverance in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life and delivering him from that. So that's phase two salvation. Uh, Save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. And I think there's a double entendre in that word for rise up because this is similar to a word or it's the same idea in a word that we'll run into at the end of this section in 27, the one with the haughty look. This is the one who lifts himself up. So there's a uh, sort of a double entendre here that the person who rises up against you is the person who elevates himself in pride against God's people. Now the next verse, or the next line rather in verse 25, is with a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. Now, the problem that we have here is when we read the word blameless, we think in terms of moral perfection. But none of us are ever morally perfect because we still have a sin nature. So this is talking about a person who is uh, blameless in terms of their desire to serve the Lord and to obey the Torah. They are uh, complete. That's the idea in the in the verb. The hithpael form is to be complete. It's comparable to the atelios, the word that is used in the in the Greek in the New Testament to talk about maturity or completion. It has the same basic meaning. So there's a lot of overlap there. So it's talking about with a blameless man or a mature man, someone who is maturing or coming to spiritual completion, with a Mature person, you will show yourself mature. You will show yourself complete. That's See, here you have the noun that's the first use, tamim, uh, with a blameless man, a man who is mature. You will show yourself to complete. There's another word for completion that we use, and that's the word sufficient, enough. God will show himself to be sufficient. He is complete. God is going to provide everything we need to handle those situations and those circumstances. Now then we shift to the next verse. Uh, We shift to the next verse as we see verse 26. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. So what in the world is going on here? What's going on here is that now he's going to bring us to a third line for repetition of how God deals with the mature believer. And then that's contrasted with the rebellious, either the unbeliever or the rebellious believer. The idea for pure is the word barar, and in the noun form, or excuse me, it starts with a participle, 
barar means to purify or to purge. So with the pure, now this is talking about the person who's in fellowship. In fact, there's this word group translated purify that is used synonymously with katharizo for cleansing. Cleansing, purification are all synonymous concepts. So with the person who is purifying in terms of their spiritual life and their spiritual walk, God is the one who will uh, show himself to be uh, pure. He is going to faithfully forgive them when they confess sin. He is going to be the one who uh, takes care of them, sustains them, and is sufficient for them as they walk with him. Then we get to the next line. It's translated, and with the devious you shall show yourself shrewd. Now notice that there are two different Hebrew words here, totally different words, ikesh and patal. Now if you go back to verse 25, both words are cognates of each other. You have the noun and you have the verb in verse 25, chasid and chasad. With blameless, you have tamim and tamam. Same word, cognates. In the first part of 26, pure is barar in both cases. It uses a different form to pick up different meanings. But here you have two different words. So if you're reading it in English, it doesn't catch you as much as it does when you're reading this in, in, in the Hebrew because it brings out the fact that God is making a strong distinction here in these two different things. He's not doing the same thing that the... Uh, human being is doing. The devious is the person who's crooked, the person who is perverse or perverted. The word kesh is used in passages like Proverbs 2.15 and Proverbs 28.6 in the sense of being twisted or perverse or not doing what they were intended uh, to do. So they are perverse. They are rebels against God. And what God's response is, is that he is shrewd, patal. And this is the idea that God is going to, um, God is going to respond to their twists and machinations to rebel against him by cutting them off in their agenda. God is going to handle them appropriately out of his justice. We then come to verse 27. But in contrast, or in explanation of this, how does all of this work itself out, this character of God? For explanation, for you will save the humble people but will bring down haughty looks. Now, these words have a broad range, and part of the problem we live in is that people always feel badly for the poor. And so there is this sort of a knee-jerk thing to take this economically, the poor versus the wealthy. That's not in the context at all, because David is is the ani here. He's the 
afflicted one. That's how the word means. It's got a broad range of person who's afflicted. There are all kinds of different afflictions besides economic afflictions. It can be translated someone who is humble, somebody who is weak, but it's the idea that they're afflicted in some way. They're going through tests. They're going through suffering. They're going through adversity. They're going through difficulty. And so it says God will save not soteriologically, not in terms of justification, but God will deliver the humble. That is the person who is afflicted. And the hum- one of the things about the humble is this word is used in contrast to the proud. So we don't understand it in terms of finances, economic poverty, but in terms of uh, mental arrogance versus humility. So that's the idea. The person who is dependent upon God would be a good way to think about that. And the external circumstances, which may be forcing them to be more dependent upon God, may be economic. It might be uh, some other adversity. It might be that, like David, they're being pursued by their enemies. But he is going to make himself dependent upon God and obedient to God. That's the essence of humility. So God will deliver the one who is submitted to his authority, ultimately, but will bring down the one who is proud. And we see this so many echoed so many times in Scripture. And yet the way it's translated with these same same different words, I mean, these, these same words, the way it's translated seems to bring out this idea about God loves the poor people because they're poor. God doesn't like the rich because they're rich. No, he doesn't like those who are uh, in rebellion against him, independent of him. Often when people are wealthy, then they they walk away from God. They're independent of God. But they can be well-educated and become independent of God. There are many different things that cause a person to be proud and lifted up and think more highly of themselves than they ought to. But again and again, Scripture emphasizes that God rescues those. It's not just there because they're afflicted. It's because they, when they're afflicted, they are become dependent upon God. That's the relationship of this idea of humble. They submit to God. Psalm 14.6, it translates it this way, you shame the counsel of the poor. See, it's not poor. It should be you shame the counsel of the afflicted or the humble. But the Lord is his refuge. See, the person he's addressing in the first half is the arrogant person who is who is shaming the humble. But the psalmist says, no, God is his refuge. He is dependent upon God. Psalm 34, 6 says, This oppressed man or the humble man, the afflicted man, the man who is forced to be dependent upon God, cries out, and the Lord hears him and delivers him from all his troubles, not saving him eternally, but delivering him in time because he's humbled himself. He's submitted to God's authority. Psalm 37, 14, evil men draw their swords and prepare their bows to bring down the oppressed. 
see the drawing their swords and preparing their bows and just using a military metaphor to demonstrate their opposition to the humble. They want to take advantage of them. They are the evil men are in contrast to the oppressed and needy. That is those who need a God's help, God's sustenance. The evil men are in contrast to the humble, so that means they are the ones who are arrogant, and they are the enemies of those who are are godly. Uh, Psalm, let me see, Psalm thirty-five, ten. With all my strength, I will say, O Lord, who can compare to you? You rescued the oppressed, that is the humble, those who are dependent upon you. From those who try to overpower them, the oppressed and needy, from those who try to rob them. Psalm 72.4 and 72.12 emphasize the same thing, that God defends, he rescues, he sustains the person who is uh, dependent upon him. And so it is the person who is humble, who prays for deliverance, who submits to God's authority. Psalm 69.29 crying out to God. He says, I am oppressed and suffering. I'm afflicted in suffering. I'm being humbled by my circumstances. Oh God, deliver and protect me. Psalm 70 verse 5, I'm oppressed and needy. Oh God, hurry to me. You are my helper and my deliverer. See, in times of trouble, we're afflicted. We're in adversity. We humble ourselves and cry out to God. Same thing in Psalm 10:12 Arise O Lord lift up your hand do not forget the humble that is those who are submitted uh, to your authority and we see the same kind of thing again in Psalm 86:1 Listen O Lord uh, answer me for I am oppressed and needy my uh, Psalm 88 which is a, another psalm that focuses on um humility as well this is a psalm of of uh Haman the Ezraite. So Ezra comes in after the um, after the dispersion. I mean, after the uh, Babylonian captivity. It's a post uh, Babylonian uh, psalm, post exilic psalm. O Lord, answer me. I mean, Psalm eighty-eight nine. My eyes grow weak because of oppression. I call out to you, O Lord, all day long. I spread out my hands in prayer to you. Verse 15, I'm oppressed and I've been on the verge of death since my youth. I've been subjected to your hard horrors and am numb with pain. What do we see here again and again and again? Why am I reading these? Because when people come, the, the humble come under adversity, they turn to God in prayer, they submit to God, and they humble themselves. That's submission to God's authority. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. That defines humility as submission to authority. What's the solution? Psalm 119.92 says, Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. The solution is the word of God. It's not a lot of the things that people come up with today in order to make life work apart from God. It is God's word that gives us the skills mentally to be able to face the uh, afflictions and the adversities of life. Psalm 119, 153 says, Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget 
your law. So this is God's attitude. We can see it echoed in uh, Proverbs 3.34 that God scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. That verse is quoted from the Septuagint translation in 1 Peter 5.5. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. After Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to God to the point of death, what happens? He is exalted to the right hand of God. He will become the King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The exaltation, not necessarily next week or next year or in this life, it may come after the judgment seat of Christ. So this emphasizes, it helps us understand David, he's humbled himself, God has delivered him, and then the focus shifts in the rest of the verses from 31 to 50 on God. Verse 46, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God of my salvation be exalted. That is the end of this particular section. But how does it begin? It begins in in uh, in this verse, in verse 31, for who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? So the theme that runs through the last part from 31 to 50 is this theme of God who is our rock. And we'll come back and work our way through that starting next week. Remember, next week on Tuesday night, we're here. The next week, we won't be. If you show up, you may think we're raptured, but we haven't been. We're just at the pre-trib rapture study group. Father, thank you for this time to be here together this evening and to fellowship around your word. Father, we pray for those in this congregation who are traveling. We pray that they would return safe to us. We pray for those who are spending special time with their family, with their loved ones. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that this will be a time for those in this church and those Christians in this world that will focus on the spiritual realities of this holiday to some degree, to focus on the fact that we have been given great blessings in this nation because our forefathers were so saturated with your word. And, Father, that saturation has uh, left this nation. We still have residual blessing, but, Father, unless we turn back to you, sooner or later those spiritual, uh, that spiritual foundation will be completely eroded. So we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray that you would expose evil where it exists, and that you would raise up men and women who understand the eternal truths of your word, that they may wisely lead us, guide us, and um, provide for our leadership in this nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.